Welcome. It's July 21, 2021, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane White Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. I'm Russell Berman, director of the Working Group. The Working Group publishes regular commentary in the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, and go to podcasts. You can subscribe to any and all of the Hoover podcasts, by the way, including The Grumpy Economist with John Cochran, The Libertarian with Victor Davis Hanson, The Pacific Century with Misha Oslin and John Yu, and Goodfellows with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Ben Hubbard, who's speaking with us from Beirut, Lebanon, where he's the bureau chief for the New York Times. Ben has spent more than a dozen years reporting on the Middle East, and he's author of a gripping and insightful book about the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, regularly referred to by his initials, MBS. And MBS is also the title of Ben's book, which appeared with Crown Publishing last year, and which I found easily on Amazon. Ben, welcome to the Caravan Podcast. Thank you. Uh, let me start right away with um, some questions. Your book provides rich detail about the rise of MBS from his childhood. He was born in 1985 through his appointment as a very young crown prince of Saudi Arabia in 2017 and his involvement in the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018, an event that casts a dark shadow on his narrative and his prospects. We'll return to Khashoggi later in our conversation, but let's turn to some other themes first. Uh, Your book and MBS's career is also about the changing nature of Saudi Arabia, its society, culture, economy, and politics. I'd like to start with that. Saudi Arabia has some strongly conservative traditions, but it also has a very young population looking for new opportunities. Uh, You know the country. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, Saudi Arabia, I think, long has been sort of best known abroad. I mean, besides being famous for oil, it's famous for having this deeply, deeply conservative society uh, that that follows sort of one of the most strict uh, interpretations of Islam on the planet, perhaps only, you know, only, you know, less than the Taliban or something like that. I mean, you know, what everybody knew about Saudi Arabia historically was that they prevented women from driving. And when women appeared in public, they were expected to cover not just their hair, but their faces and the rest of their bodies with sort of, you know, flowing robes that would sort of cover the shape of their body. The, um, you know, Westerners tend to refer to Saudi Islam as Wahhabism, a term that gets thrown around a lot, which the Saudis actually hate, but which uh, a lot of people find useful. And this is a very, very austere interpretation of Islam that that uh, really tries to harken back to the ways that people think that, you know, Islam was was practiced in the very early days. And this, the way that it works out in modern society included things like having no mannequins in malls or, or the mannequins didn't have heads because they believed that it was, you know, only only God was could, could create the human form and that it was wrong to try to, you know, have a mannequin in a mall with a head. Or you would see sometimes billboards that were fuzzy. The heads would be all fuzzy because they didn't want to have the actual photos of people. I mean, very, very austere. Um and this, you know, the, you, you've been, you know, obviously run by a royal family. It's one of the one of the world's few remaining absolute monarchies. Um, but at the same time, you have this kind of demographic boom that happens. You have this very, very young population 
Uh, somewhere around two thirds of Saudis are under age 30. And they tend to be very, very well connected sort of to the rest of the world electronically. Saudi Arabia has incredible cell phone penetration. You've got, you know, Saudis carry multiple cell phones. They're some of the world's largest consumers of YouTube uh, and other social media platforms, super active on Twitter. And so you have, you know, on one hand, this tradition of this society being incredibly conservative and in line with this very, you know, austere interpretation of Islam. But then you have all these young people who are watching a lot of the same shows on Netflix that you and I and your listeners watch, who are listening to music from the West and, and even more conservative, even more conservative devout Saudis, instead of just paying attention to Saudi clerics, you know, they're saying, okay, well, what are the clerics in Egypt or in Pakistan or in, you know, other, other parts of the Muslim world have to say, and kind of realizing that they're not saying the same thing as the Saudis. So it's kind of while this, these changes are happening in society that MBS shows up. He, he, the first time most of the world hears about him is 2015. King Abdullah dies, King Salman becomes the king, and very soon starts delegating tremendous power to his son, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who was 29 at the time. Um, and, you know, we, we quite quickly realized this is a young leader like the kingdom has never seen before. And, and also the kind of figure really that the region doesn't see very often. I mean, somebody who sort of came out of nowhere, people just really had no idea who this guy was. Um, and, and young, full of energy and just starts saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And has all these like these huge plans to do things. You know, I'm going to privatize Aramco, something that nobody had ever, you know, that would be like the British royal family selling their, you know, saying they're going to sell off part of the crown jewels or something. You've got, you know, talking about, you know, allowing women to drive, talking about, you know, introducing entertainment. And so over the next few years, he sort of rises, uh, gets more and more power inside the kingdom and, and has this reputation for just being kind of a dynamo, um, wants to bring movie theaters to the kingdom, wants to bring concerts, um, you know, wants not only to give women the right to drive, but to get them into the workplace. And working into all you know, working in all kinds of different sectors where they never would have worked before. So that's you know this that, anyway. That that sort of gives you a sense of kind of where Saudi Arabia was, and and um, you know, but there was really this this energy in Saudi society, and I think especially in the younger part of Saudi society that MBS in a lot of ways was appealing to, and and in a certain sense harnessing to try to take the kingdom where he wants it to go. So he clearly plays a central role, but against the backdrop of this uh, demographic change, is it, could one think about MZ, MBS as the as the voice of Saudi youth? Uh, to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I think that he, um, you know, when I when I started working on this book, I, I was I was actually kind of surprised at how little anybody knew about MBS's background. Um, you know, just about sort of where he grew up, how he grew up, where he was educated. I mean, the basics were known, but just in terms of sort of what kind of person he was. And, you know, I, I write in the book that, you know, you can imagine that if, you know, some 29-year-old had sort of come out of nowhere in the West and was suddenly like in charge of military policy, economic policy, social policy, religious policy, you know, all the journalists in that country would have quickly gone out and like, who is this person? Where did he come from? You know, let's go back to the schools that he attended. Maybe we can find his old teachers. We can find, you know, people who studied with them or people who were on sort of whatever team or in whatever group with them and just try to figure out sort of who this person is. None of that happened in Saudi Arabia because it's an absolute monarchy. And when the king decides who he wants to give power to, it's just not something that, you know, your, your citizen is supposed to ask too many questions about. 
So I found it really fascinating. And so I, you know, dug around and was able to find people who did know him when he was younger in various capacities, some people who went to school with him at various times. And part of the reason they never talked about it is his background is not very impressive. Um, you know, he was not one of the king's first sons. He was the first wife of the king's second, uh, the, sorry, the first son of the king's second wife. So not, you know, not sort of expected to be the one that the king would choose. Um, but he also had this kind of growing up that was very contemporary. He played a lot of video games. He read a lot of manga. He read a lot of, you know, sort of American comic books and watched a lot of TV and um, was really into Apple products and, you know, and, and was sort of plugged into what was going on in youth society elsewhere in the world. And, and you know, you compare that to everybody who would, you know, because of the way that the kingdom is set up, you know, all of the kings that we've had in recent memory have all been quite old. They've all been in their 70s or in their 80s. These are not people who are plugged in with sort of what young people are thinking about. And so, you know, he he comes along really with a much deeper understanding of what all these young Saudis are thinking about and looking at and reading and what they're watching on TV. And, you know, and, and he can really kind of appeal to that. And I think when he comes on on the scene, many of that younger, many in that younger generation really see a kind of hope in him that, you know, I don't think they would have expected from, you know, a monarch who's in his 80s. Uh, that's right. If I follow the Saudi dynasty lines correctly, should he become king, which he is lined up to be, this will really be the generational change. Uh, is that not correct? Yeah, I mean, he would be, so Saudi Arabia, instead of, you know, in, in most Western monarchies, you go father to son, father to son. In Saudi Arabia, you had the founding king, uh, King Abdelaziz, who you know founded the kingdom, and since he passed away, it has been passed. the The rule has been passed through a succession of his sons, going from roughly from oldest to youngest. A few people have been skipped over either because they they weren't interested or because the family deemed them unfit. And basically, you reach the end of the line with Salman, the current king, and so somebody had to find a way to jump to the next generation. Um, MBS shows up on the scene and yeah, if he, you know, when his father passes away, if he becomes king, he will be the first of that, of that second, I guess the third generation. So yeah. the first of the first of the founding King's grandchildren to become the monarch. So you've talked a little bit about his, um, his cultural orientation as he was growing up and his aspirations for change. Can we put a little meat on the bones here? What's changing in Saudi Arabia in terms of women, the, the guardianship institution, or the forms of entertainment that uh, are now available? What's really going on there? Well, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot happening in terms of Saudi society and how, how it functions. I mean, there, so, so some of the early moves that MBS took that uh, at the time, we didn't even know what to make of them just because they seem so kind of out of the blue. Saudi Arabia has, and has historically had this group called the Commission for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. And this is a group that uh, they're basically a religious police force. That's how we tend to refer to them in the Western media. Um, and they, their job was basically to be out on the street enforcing Wahhabism, enforcing this very austere interpretation of Islam that Saudi Arabia practices and that the, you know, that the, that the state has imposed on people. And so they would you know, patrol in malls and make sure that unrelated men and women were not mingling if they saw women's hair sort of sneaking out from underneath their veil. They would accost them sometimes and tell them to cover their hair. They would, you know, if, if they ever caught people drinking or taking any kind of drugs, that would be a huge deal. They could haul them into the station. And, and, and so they were really the on the ground forcers in enforcers of this, 
of, of Wahhabism, basically, of this very traditional kind of Saudi Arabia. And one of the one of the early things that MBS does is he takes away their power to arrest. Just kind of out of nowhere, there's a, I believe it was a royal decree saying that they no longer have the power to arrest and that, um, you know, now they can sort of encourage good behavior and, and they basically disappear. Uh, and I remember at the time, you know, nobody really knew how seriously to take this because it was just something that, you know, nobody could kind of imagine happening. And, and looking back, you know, in hindsight, you realize that this was something that needed to happen for MBS to do the other things that he wanted to do and basically to make the changes in society that he wanted to do. I think among the biggest winners in MBS's rise are Saudi women. Um, you know, he has, in many ways, um, tried to make them, you know, somewhat equal players. He wants to get them into the workforce and not just in, you know, places where women in Saudi Arabia were traditional, traditionally worked, which would have been, you know, lot, you know, education and things like that, but wants them working in tech, wants them working in companies, wants them working in sort of all these other parts of the economy. And, and so you have all these young women now graduating from universities and considering careers that their mothers and their grandmothers would have never thought about before he you know very famously of course finally lifted the ban on women driving and this had been sort of a th not, what, what's the right i was going to say a thorn in the side but that's not correct i mean this was really kind of an international black eye for saudi arabia i mean it just i think saudi diplomats and saudis who traveled abroad just got tired of always answering <laughs> answering this question about like why can't women drive in your country you know this is the 21st yeah. century and so he got rid of that. That frees women up to move and to be in charge of, you know, where they're going and what they're doing. And, you know, that was a huge thing. This hasn't quite, I mean, I don't think we can overstate it. The cabinet is still entirely men. Um, the the high, you know, you have women who are running some banks now. There are a handful of Saudi women ambassadors, including the ambassador to the United States. So, you know, th th this is a major change in Saudi society. And I think that's something that is, you know, very likely to stick and to, and to move forward. Also on the social front, you know, I think the things that he wants to do with entertainment, he, you know, wants Saudi to sort of go from zero to 60 in 30 seconds and go from being a place that had zero movie theaters to having, you know, movie theaters all over the place and having concerts and having, you know, all sorts of other. He basically realized that Saudi Arabia was kind of dull and that young people didn't want to be there because it was really boring. Yeah. And if he wanted them to stay at home and he wanted them to spend their money at home, more importantly, he had to offer them the things that they would usually seek out by going to Dubai or going to Bahrain, or if they had the money going to Paris or London. So, and these, these are, you know, I think there's a tendency in the West um, to kind of dismiss these things and say, oh, this is just PR because he's trying to please the West. And I don't think it's PR at all. I think these are major changes that are taking place in Saudi society. And I think we have every reason to believe that they will continue. Yeah, I mean, it sounds more like he's trying to please the younger generation, but these reform efforts, which surely seem positive, uh, have been carried out at times with a heavy hand. I'm thinking here especially of his anti-corruption program when he locked up members of the Saudi elite in a hotel, a luxury hotel to be sure, in order to pressure them to admit to corruption and to return some of their illicit gains. Can you tell us that story? What happened there? And what was the response of Saudi society? Um, I'm, I'm going to add a little bit to that before we get to the Ritz, because at the same time that MBS is out sort of trying to change Saudi society and trying to give more uh, freedoms to women and things like that, he's also doing a bunch of things that make people very nervous. Uh, I think one of the first things that he does his is, is he, he launches the war in Yemen. He, he launches 
the the Saudi intervention. Basically, you know, a civil war had begun in Yemen. You have a rebel group aligned with Iran that takes over the capital city, and MBS comes in um, and very quickly launches like a large scale military intervention in Yemen. Sends Saudi jets flying over the border to try to bomb these guys out of the capital. And it just very quickly becomes a debacle because it's clear that the Saudi military just really doesn't have the capabilities to do things like this. And so you have the war in Yemen that just keeps simmering in the background with reports of you know mass civilian casualties because Saudi pilots are bombing weddings and funerals and you know killing large numbers of civilians and things like that. The in terms of the heavy hand, it, Saudi Arabia remains a very authoritarian place. I mean, it is an absolute monarchy. In all of the reforms MBS is talking about, he's not talking about democracy. He's not talking about political participation. And so there are these kinds of waves of arrests of various kinds of activists in Saudi society. There are arrests that target clerics, many of them, many of them conservatives and people that likely would have spoken out about the kinds of changes that MBS wants. Uh, but some others who were not. I mean, there was a very well-known economist who was arrested basically because he publicly questioned the, the wisdom of having an IPO of Aramco, the state oil company. He was arrested and later put on trial on terrorism charges. Um, and so all of that's going on before women driving actually happens. Like a number of the probably most famous activists who had been campaigning for that in the kingdom all get rounded up. Um, so you have that going on. There's, you know, there's this strange incident in 2017 with the kidnapping of Saad Hariri. We can talk about that later in the program. And then there's the Ritz. And the Ritz was really just kind of something, something out of a movie. And basically what happens is, is um, in a matter of a few days, um, a few hundred people from the elite of Saudi society, and we're talking members of the royal family, we're talking some of the king's bi biggest and best known business people, all get phone calls inviting them to come to Riyadh because either they want to have a meeting with MBS or the king has summoned them for something. And so, you know, these people kind of make their way there and then they get picked up and they get driven to the Ritz-Carlton, which is this huge, beautiful hotel right next to the diplomatic quarter. They are checked in. They are, they have their belongings all taken away and they're basically, they basically become inmates. You know, there's and then, the, you know, the kingdom announces that they've created a new anti-corruption committee and that, you know, we sort of the picture that emerges is that this is a massive um, detention campaign that's being billed as an anti-corruption drive and that these people have been locked up there so that they can be questioned. And so that, you know, files that the, that the government has on them, you know, they can go through these and they can, you know, give these people a chance to sort of settle up with the government. Um, you know, we reported on it very heavily at the time. There were all kinds of reports of people being quite seriously abused inside. Um, you know, there wasn't much in terms of what we would consider due process in terms of, you know, defending yourself against the allegations against you. Uh, not a lot of, you know, outside legal representation, a lot of arm twisting and things like that. And, you know, they, they I, I believe the final number that the governments gave was that they ended up sort of collecting about $106 billion in what the government had deemed ill-gotten gains. Um, there's all kinds of debates about this. You know, I think, uh, you know, I, Saudi Arabia had had a chronic problem with corruption. Some of that I think is frankly the nature of a, of a, of a monarchy that if you have one family that effectively owns the place, how can you tell them they can't sort of dip into the till here and there? Um, you know, and there were, there had just been all sorts of various schemes and contracts and things like that, that people had gotten rich off of over the years. and. It is probably true that the Ritz shut some of that down by sending a message to these people that the rules had changed. 
it was also a very political act. I mean, you know, in one fell swoop, MBS also managed to basically eliminate a number of his contenders or a number of his competitors in the royal family or, you know, other princes who I think a lot of people thought may have had a shot at becoming king. And he just basically, you know, destroyed their reputations. And, and I think in some cases took away a lot of their money and put them on a leash so that they were no longer a threat to his ascension to the throne. Um, you asked as well about the response in Saudi society. It's, it's, it's complicated and I, I, it's hard to answer questions about, you know, I guess sort of what Saudis think. I mean, at the end of the day, it is authoritarian society. Um, there is very little in the way of what we would consider civil society. There's no reliable public opinion polling. And it's just, you know, it's not that, you know, the, the message on other MBS has been clear that, you know, if you go public criticizing things that the government is doing, you could very well end up in jail. And so a lot of times it's hard to tell. You know, I think people know that if they agree with what the government and what MBS is doing, they can go on Twitter and they can, you know, talk about how wonderful it is. And if they disagree with it, they should probably stay quiet. I mean, there was definitely, that said, I do think that there was some enthusiasm for the Ritz. I think that there was a sense, certainly in parts of society, that these people had gotten away with this for too long. And that the only way to really <clears throat> kind of stop this history of corruption was with a really drastic sort of move. But at the time, people didn't want to talk about it. You know, I think everybody realized this was a very intense security process that was happening. And your average citizen did not want to uh, go on the record, sort of giving their views of what was going on. Yeah. So your own profession, journalism, is really at the ground zero of this question of public criticism, um, limitations on civil society, and press freedom. Uh, this is where, this is one further side where the authoritarian uh, character of current developments in Saudi shows up. And it's also where the Khashoggi story becomes important. Uh, remind us, who was Jamal Khashoggi and what was his relationship to, um, to Saudi Arabia? I, mean, I think for most uh, Westerners and Western, you know, readers of publications like the New York Times, um, you know, Jamal was only somebody that they would have heard about after he was killed. Um, in the Arab world, he was a very different sort of character. I mean, this guy was a household name, certainly in Saudi Arabia and in other parts of the region. For most of his life, he was a loyalist. He was, in, in a way, sort of part of the structure of the monarchy. He was a journalist uh, and a well-known journalist. Um, he also worked sort of officially and unofficially for certain princes in the royal family, either doing media work or various other things. He, he was considered an insider. And so, you know, people like me, when I, you know, had to begin covering Saudi Arabia, one of the first things that any journalist did was get Jamal Khashoggi's phone number because he was somebody who, unlike many Saudis, always answered his phone. And you could call him and say, hey, Jamal, this thing just happened. Like, what's going on here? And he would you know, to the best of his ability, tell you what was going on and try to interpret what the royal family was doing, what it was thinking. Um, you know, he had a very close relationship with Turkey on Faisal, who was the, you know, the prince who headed the Saudi intelligence agency and then served as ambassador both in the UK and in Washington. Um, he went on missions for Turkey on Faisal, including going to Afghanistan to meet Osama bin Laden before 9-11. You know, he was somebody who was very much like Saudis thought Jamal Khashoggi was like part of the system. And he um, basically ends up on the wrong side of MBS. Once kind of the authoritarian side of MBS's project starts becoming clear, Jamal is very uncomfortable with it. Um, he's critical of it to a certain extent. 
he doesn't like the fact that there's, you know, sort of the, 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 li the limited margin for expression that existed in Saudi Arabia was getting even smaller. Uh, a number of his friends got arrested, and I think that was very personal for him. Uh, and then it's actually the issue that kind of causes the break is ends up being Donald Trump. Um, the Saudis did not expect Trump to win, I think, like many people. As soon as he did, they invested tremendous effort into trying to build a relationship with him. I think they were actually quite scared given some of the things that he had said both about, about the kingdom and about Muslims during the campaign. And Jamal didn't feel like he needed to go along with that. He was quite critical of Trump and about you know the way that Trump had talked about Muslims during the campaign and um, you know spoke about that publicly and very quickly got a call from the royal court sort of cutting him off saying, you know, you are not allowed to go on Twitter. You're not allowed to give any press interviews. So he goes through this kind of period of silence where he just disappeared. I mean, this guy who had been on TV and writing columns here and there and just kind of disappears. Um, he later sort of gets back on and then he gets kind of warnings from friends of his that if he sticks around, he could end up being arrested. And so he packs his bags and moves to Washington and uh, lands in Washington, D.C. to sort of um, figure out what it means to be an, an intellectual in exile. Yeah, and your book gives really intriguing detail about his time in Washington uh, when, as critical as he appears to have become of the regime of MBS, uh, he had not yet given up uh, hope to return, and he even resisted when people tried to label him a dissident. He didn't like that term, at least for a period. In that context, you describe his relationship with Maggie Mitchell-Salem. Uh, who is she, and can you tell us about her role in Khashoggi's political development? Well, I think so. So Jamal lands in Washington. He's uh, depressed. His marriage is falling apart. He has just been, you know, I think he's used to somebody who was on the inside and now he's very profoundly on the outside. Um, you know, he had lived in DC before when he, he had worked as a media advisor at the embassy, but it wasn't his city. You know, he didn't, um, he just didn't, you know, it wasn't where he wanted to be. He wanted to be back in Saudi Arabia because it was country. It, it was his country. And so he sort of, lands in Washington trying to figure out, okay, what's this new life that I have where I'm scared of going back to my own country? And so um, he, you know, he starts looking for kind of a place to plug in. And, you know, a lot, he, he has this sort of, you know, old relationship with this woman named Maggie Mitchell-Salem, who you mentioned. She was a former U.S. diplomat who, you know, had sort of worked, you know, worked in various other kind of think tanks and things involved with the Middle East and had become friends with Jamal many, many years before. They had remained close and kept in touch and visited each other when they were traveling and things like that. And Maggie then is living in DC and working for the Qatar Foundation. This is also, people remember a time when relations between Qatar and Saudi Arabia were particularly bitter. And so she kind of adopts Jamal. And, and some of this is, I think, just out because she's friends with him and she's worried about him and she sort of wants to make sure that he's okay and that he's going to adapt to this new life. And I think she also wants to find, she wants him to find a way to start working again, to start being a journalist and commenting and writing about things that he cares about. And to, so she kind of takes it upon herself to help him become kind of a DC based Arab intellectual. And, um, you know, I think, you know, some people would say she kind of goes too far. She ends up basically editing a lot of his columns before they go to the Washington Post. And, you know, they have these kind of fierce debates where I think she's pushing him in a lot of ways to, be harsher on the kingdom than he sometimes wants to be. Um, but anyway, this is, you know, Jamal, you know, once he's in the U.S., he basically becomes the most famous for his, his um, columns in the Washington Post. 
And, you know, he, he never calls for the downfall of the monarchy. He's never calling for Saudi Arabia to become a democracy, but he is sort of unflinching and calling out the authoritarianism of MBS and basically saying the kingdom cannot move forward if we go this way. And I don't think that that is, that's not just because of his relationship with Mitchell Salem. I think that's what Jamal really thought. I think he really felt that <clears throat> Saudi Arabia can kind of remain politically what it was but still allow for public discussion. And, and actually that public discussion can allow the rulers, even in a monarchy, to rule better because they can get feedback from the people. So in the, in the aftermath of your book, uh, there's a kind of sequel. The Biden administration released the U.S. intelligence report on the Khashoggi killing, uh, which implicates MBS, but as is often said in the press, with no smoking gun. Um, I want to invite you to evalu evaluate and speculate. Uh, how are U.S.-Saudi relations developing now, half a year into the Biden administration? And will the administration's evident efforts to cold shoulder the crown prince impact the uh, relationship between Washington and Riyadh, which is an alliance that goes back to the Roosevelt era? To understand, I think, what the Biden administration felt like it needed to do with Saudi Arabia, we have to talk a little bit about the Trump years. Um, the, the Saudis, you know, as I said earlier, invested tremendous effort and energy into building a relationship with Donald Trump. And, and I actually think it's one of the most successful things that they ever did. I mean, if you had, you know, polled foreign policy experts before the, before Trump won the election and said, gee, what do you think his relationship with Saudi Arabia is going to be like? I don't think many people would have expected that he would have been so tight with, you know, with Mohammed bin Salman and with King Salman. Um, but they really pulled it off. They really convinced the Trump administration that like, we can be close friends of yours in the Middle East. We care about a lot of the same things. We can do business together. And, um, and, and, and Trump ends up very much protecting MBS from a lot of the other kind of anger or criticism from other parts of Washington, whether it's over the war in Yemen, whether it's over the Khashoggi killing, whether it's over the arrests of activists and dissidents, basically anything that MBS gets himself into Trump ends up serving as kind of a firewall um, to protect MBS from, from sort of anger in other parts of the Washington establishment. And so when Biden comes in, he very much wants to turn the page on that kind of a relationship. And I think that that, that is really the motivation. You know, there's kind of talk of a reset and there's talk about, you know, the, the term that the administration used was we're going to reevaluate the relationship with Saudi Arabia. And I think that releasing the military, sorry, releasing the intelligence report is kind of the way to hit that that button and send a message to MBS that, you know, you can no longer get away with the stuff that you got away with when Donald Trump was president. And, you know, at the time, you know, people sort of speculated, is this going to be a break in the relationship? Is this going to, and, and, and that clearly hasn't happened. <clears throat> it does seem that the administration sent the message that they wanted to send. And I think all, all uh, indications are that the Saudis received that message and that they have responded. Um, MBS has, has not done, you know, things that were kind of seen to be as disruptive and crazy since Biden came in as he had done before. Um, and so I think, you know, on one, in one sense, what has happened is that there's kind of two levels. One way of looking at it is there's kind of multiple levels to the U.S.-Saudi relationship. You have kind of the head to head, you know, head of state level, you know, official to official at the top. And, you know, this is sort of you know, the president meeting with either senior princes or the king and, you know, talking at that level. But you also have kind of the nuts and bolts of the relationship, which is all of the bilateral stuff that happens, whether it's military cooperation, 
military training for Saudi officers and, you know, Saudi technicians, uh, intelligence sharing and, you know, all kinds of security issues, whether it's talk about oil policy and broader economic policy, things like that. And a lot of that is handled either by other agencies or it's handled by, you know, other diplomats of the State Department and things like that. And that never gets seriously disrupted. Um, and so I think what's happened now is that the relationship, those things have kind of kept going. And I think the Biden administration just basically wanted to send a message that like, you can't do that crazy stuff anymore. And so we've kind of fallen back. I mean, that what the thing to watch now, I think, is how will that higher level relationship be restored? You know, Biden originally had said he would not speak with MBS because he was not his counterpart. That was the reasoning that was given by the White House. He would say, you know, I'm the head of state. And so my counterpart is the king. Uh, so, you know, he had his phone call with the king, not with MBS, um, which, you know, has a certain logic to it. A, a few weeks ago, MBS is actually his younger brother, Khaled bin Salman, who was, you know, formerly the ambassador in Washington, came to D.C. and saw all kinds of people, um, you know, even though he's, you know, his, 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 his highest position is being the deputy, he's the deputy minister of defense. But, you know, he met you know, he met all kinds of people in Washington. So clearly the counterpart issue is not something that this administration is going to be strict on now. Um, the Saudis were very happy to advertise all those meetings. The Biden administration didn't really say much about them. You know, the, the question will really be, when will we see MB MBS go to Washington? I still think that there's, you know, that's kind of not a reward that the administration is willing to give him yet. Um, I don't know when that will come. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's just always, you know, he's, he's still not popular with Congress. He's definitely not popular with, you know, sort of the general American public. And there's a good chance that if he shows up in Washington, there's going to be, you know, quite vociferous protests outside of wherever he ends up. So, you know, that's when I think we'll, we'll know that the relationship has kind of gone back to normal. Okay. Now, one last question, a little bit off the Saudi topic, but very apropos to Lebanon, where you are speaking with me from. One of the important incidents you describe in MBS's career took place in November 2017, when he seems to have held the Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri in Riyadh and forced him to resign from his Lebanese post. In fact, that resignation was not accepted by the Lebanese president. But can you unpack that historical moment for our listeners? And to make matters a little more complicated, can you put that 2017 Hariri resignation attempt in relationship to what has just now transpired in Lebanon, last week's announcement by Hariri that he was giving up on trying to form a government? Can we do a um, compare and contrast, so to speak, uh, between the two resignations, 2017 and 2021? Yeah, so for those who don't remember, we'll just give the recap. I mean, basically the way that we watched it from Beirut is that all of a sudden, um, Saad Hariri, the president of Lebanon, showed up on TV from Riyadh um, announcing in a somewhat stilted language that he was standing down as prime minister. Um, it very quickly became clear that none of his aides knew that this was the plan when he went to Riyadh. Um, the statement that he read contained a lot of very harsh language about Iran and about, you know, Hezbollah in Lebanon and, you know, sort of using language that Hariri had never really used before and that people just didn't really expect him to use. Um, and it's just kind of this huge shock to everybody of like, well, what, what the hell just happened? And so anyway, you know, over time, the story becomes clear that what had happened is that MBS had summoned him. Um, his people had sort of said, okay, Saad, you got to come to Riyadh. And they had 
at the time told him that he was going to come and go camping with the crown prince that weekend. And so Saad had showed up sort of wearing casual clothes and expecting to go out and, you know, instead had gotten sort of this, this um, unceremonious, you could say, welcome, um, where he was just very much dressed down. I mean, um, you know, dressed down and, and basically handed this statement and told, you know, you're going to go on TV and resign. So he did. And then that sets off this whole process of sort of this international diplomatic effort to figure out what happened and to get Saad out of it, to get to get Hariri out of it. And basically, you know, we need to get him back to Lebanon because he's the prime minister and we're worried about, you know, instability in Lebanon. And so, you know, all these Lebanese politicians get involved in various ways. The Egyptians, you know, uh, you know, the French are very involved, the Americans are involved, and everybody's just trying to figure out how do we get the prime minister of Lebanon back to Lebanon. And so this takes a while. Um, and, you know, Saad finally comes back. And once he, you know, he gets to Lebanon and, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, a little while later basically announces that he has, he is not going to resign and, uh, you know, kind of continues as prime minister. And so we, we, we learn later, you know, I sort of went back and tried to report this out for the book. And, um, you know, there's a few things going on. I mean, Saad, on one hand, had had a lot of relationships with other members of the royal family, some of them financial, and there were very likely sort of financial dealings with other princes he had been involved in or facilitated that had that MBS wanted to put a stop to or that he wanted undone. And there was also this idea that, you know, the Saudis had always, um, they had invested a lot in Lebanon because they wanted to have a political stake here. And there's this idea that, you know, after everything that we've put in there, all, almost all of which was which was done through the Hariri family, through, you know, Saad's father, Rafiq al-Hariri, who was assassinated in 2005, and through, through Saad Hariri, the son, it had all been done through that family. And I think, you know, MBS comes in and he's, he's young, he doesn't have that background, that history to sort of see things. And I think he looks at Lebanon and says, what have we gotten out of this? You know, we have sort of the person who's supposed to be representing our interests there in a power sharing government with Hezbollah, like what's going on. And so, you know, that those are sort of the things that drove it, but it's a profound failure. Basically, you know, everyone else who cares about stability in Lebanon very quickly lets the Saudis know this is unacceptable. You can't, this is going to be incredibly destabilizing and you just can't force the prime minister of another country to resign. It's just something that you can't do. And so, you know, Hariri comes back into office and sort of, you know, limps through the next elections. His party loses, you know, loses some seats. And, um, you know, that and that ends up sort of causing a rupture in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and some of its traditional allies in Lebanon. I think the, um, you know, the, the, the incident that we had just, um, I guess, when was last week, this week? I uh, can't keep track of the days. Anyway, when, when Saad announced recently that he was not going to be able to form government after sort of trying for nine months. It's much less dramatic. And I, I don't think if the Saudis played any role in it whatsoever, I think it was very, very minimal. Um, I think it's just really, a, you know, the country is now in a deep, deep crisis, both economically and politically. Um, and, you know, the politicians who have to decide these kinds of things by consensus just can't sort of put their differences aside and find a way to, uh, to form a government. So it's much, much less dramatic, but uh, it ends up leaving the country in a, in a much, much worse situation. Well, Lebanon, the Lebanon crisis is going to be with us for a while, and um, uh, I wish the country luck. Uh, in the meantime, Ben, uh, thank you for the conversation. We will look forward to reading more from you about Saudi Arabia and about Lebanon and the Middle East in general. 
Ben Hubbard's book, MBS, was published by Crown in 2020, and I recommend it highly. Listeners can follow Hoover's Working Group in the Middle East and the Islamic World at hoover.org slash caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at hooverinst, I-N-S-T, and I'm Russell Berman on Twitter at russellbermansf. Please listen to the Caravan podcast later this month when my Caravan colleague Cole Bunzel will return. And I'll be back in about a month. I hope you'll be listening in then. Goodbye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.